You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. A small building on the corner of Duke of Gloucester Street and Nassau Street in the historic area outlines the story of African-American religions when they reached the Williamsburg colony. Wrapped in a cruel history, religion offers narratives of resilience, hope, and community. Manager of African-American Initiatives, Harvey Bakari, joins us today to help tell their story. Harvey, tell us a little bit about this African-American religion exhibit, just in physical terms, uh, where it stands and how it operates. The African-American religion exhibit in the Tyler Cole building uh, looks at the history of religion and its impact on the African-American community, particularly the Baptist faith. They look at the two founding members of the uh, church, First Baptist Church, which were Moses and Gowan Pamphlet. When we look back at African-American religion, it's not just one religion. We're talking about individuals that were transported from different distinct communities and might have brought with them very different religious faiths. What do we know about the different types of African faiths that would have been represented in the people who are being transported to Virginia? Well, the, uh, just to provide the context uh, for the religions that they're bringing over to the Americas, um, is that Africa's a little less than 12 million square miles. So that means there's a lot of people, lots of religions, lots of different cultures, and they vary from region to region. And so you can almost divide the different African religions into a couple of general categories. The first category would be the uh, traditional African religions, such as the ones practiced by Olada Equiana, which uh, believed in one God, but had many deities uh, that were represented in their beliefs. And um, he, he uh, made a comparison between his religion of the Igbo people and Judaism. He said there were so many similarities and, and practices that the Jews practiced. He saw a direct correlation between the two. Um, now, when you look at the people near West Central Africa, people who come from larger kingdoms or states, uh, they, they would have a religion such as the, the Yoruba religion, where they would have a hierarchy of uh, uh, deities. So it would be very similar to, on one hand, the Greek mythology. On the other hand, Catholicism, which has many different saints. So for those Africans, when they arrived into the Americas, if they arrived in a Catholic country, they could substitute their African deities with the Catholic uh, angels and saints. Now, the third group would be uh, the African Muslims. And they were people of, as they call, people of the book. And they had their mosques, they had schools, and they were generally in uh, the Sudan and in certain areas of Nigeria. And many of those people were also being brought to this region. And then the last group it's, is the secret societies. And this is where people would learn information by degrees, kind of like Freemasons. And uh, it would be, the women would have their secret societies and men would have their secret societies. So you could almost divide it into those four categories of different belief systems that Africans bring to the Americas. Now how they survive depends on many things once they arrive. And we know that in Williamsburg there actually was an effort by white masters mm -hmm. to convert um, the enslaved population to Christianity. And this is a religion that some individuals, African individuals, embrace and others resist. What is the story of, of conversion uh, once these individuals in Williamsburg are introduced to the Christian faith? 
Well, in Williamsburg, when they introduce the Christian faith, you've, you've got some value tensions that are occurring within the white community as well as the black community. Within the white community, there's this tension between the church, some church officials and slave masters. Some church officials feel that it's their religious obligation to Christianize and baptize the slaves, that at least that's what you can do, provide them salvation. The tension that's being brought is that slave owners are saying, well, no, um, if we Christianize them and we baptize them, that means we have to teach them to read the Bible. That means they may think that they're equal to us. It's going to make, a, it's going to make them very difficult to control. And we, after all, didn't bring them here to make them Christians. We brought them here to work. So you've got that tension going on between certain church officials, not all, but certain church officials and some slave owners. And uh, so that's one side. Within the enslaved community, you've got, obviously, enslaved people are saying, look, this is a religion that says that we are pagans, heathens, savages, and says that we're the cursed children of Ham. Uh, so there's a lot of resistance against the, the, the uh, Christianity. And Christianity for the enslaved community doesn't really take a stronghold until you get like into the 19th century, uh, late 18th, 19th century, um, because there's still that tension. Because one thing that happens with the religion is that within most religious communities, that's where your leadership comes from. But particularly with oppressed people, because once you're taken from your homeland, you don't have a queen, a king, a government, a military. So the one person who's in the strongest position of leadership is the African priest or priestess. Okay, so therefore, you can see some women in the Americas, enslaved women in the Americas, having great influence within enslaved communities, because if they came over as a priestess, they are revered and sometimes feared by many others within the community. This must be a hard topic. Um, as a researcher, it must be hard to find evidence and narratives that tell you, or even artifacts, that tell you about these various faiths and how they were practiced. What are some of the records and tools that you're able to use as a historian to try to piece together this history of a people whose history was not particularly cherished in the country they, they came to? Well, there are a number of ways that you can find out the information. First, you have to consciously look for it. If you're not looking for something, you're not going to find it. You would just skim right over it. Uh, but beyond, you know, primary documents, there's oral traditions. Also, even in the laws, the laws in many of the countries would tell you just the fact that they made a law that said that they're concerned about slaves gathering on Sunday or in Jamaica, Obia laws. That's like what you would call, you might call witchcraft. Um, uh, so laws were specific against that. So within the efforts to control the enslaved population, you are given indications of what they're doing. Of, uh, there's the belief that funerals are being used as a pretext for planning rebellions. Uh, so again, you can read between the lines. Um, there's also many other sources, newspapers, personal accounts, diaries, eyewitnesses, and the survival of oral traditions uh, in terms of what religious practices were being uh, carried on. Uh, the WPA projects where they interviewed some um, elders who were enslaved, uh, other sources that were used. And then Christian missionaries, because Christian missionaries and their efforts to uh, convert the enslaved population, they made many observations uh, about what they were doing. And uh, there was one missionary who said, you know, I think he was in Georgia. He says, um, the, the Negroes are 
Christians and word only, but their practices are very much that of a, I think, I think you said heathen. Or very, so that gave you a sense that there were still some African practices that the Christian missionaries could not remove, uh, but they had identified that, you know, they're not exactly where we want them to be. So one example is a, it's called a ring shout. And and much of West African uh, religious practice and ceremonies, when they would worship, they would include singing, music, and dance. And normally they would dance in a counterclockwise manner. So here you have African Christians who are enslaved in places like Virginia and, 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 and the South. And they're doing this ring shout, which missionaries give us account of and others give us account of. And so they go in a counterclockwise manner. And because they can't use the drums to make their polyrhythm, they start to use their hands. So hand clapping becomes very prominent because now you carry out the rhythm with a hand clapping instead of a drum. Foot stomping also carries out a different rhythm as well. So as the people are moving in the circle, they're creating their polyrhythms with their hands, with their bodies. Now you add onto it the singing. You have call and response. Again, some very important elements of African worship, call and response. And then you have um, the other element of the lead. Well, you have the call person, the person who calls and everybody else responds. And then you add on to, to that the element of Christianity. OK, because now they're taking the story of Moses and his people being delivered from bondage, taking the stories of Daniel and the lion's den. And they're paralleling that they're making a parallel between their current condition and the condition of the Hebrews and the Bible being enslaved. So you put all of that together, it's an attempt to, for some slaves to what's called hide in plain sight, do something that is considered non-threatening to the slave masters. If you do something that's threatening, that raises attention, red flags, let's stop it. If you do something that appears non-threatening, we're singing about Moses, we're singing about, we're singing about People you understand in the Bible, this may be seen as, okay, that's not as threatening, you know. Um, whereas uh, uh, the people in Brazil and the Caribbean could practice some of their religions outright uh, because of just the, there were just so many of them. Uh, the exceptions here in British North America would have been Louisiana. Um, they were allowed to play drums in Congo Square, at New Orleans, Louisiana, in Congo Square, and they openly perform some voodoo rituals that uh, that some whites uh, became engaged in, you know, not just observers, but also began to get engaged in. So it all depends. It depends on the landscape. It depends on the religion. And most of all, it depends on the tolerance level. And it seems like the Protestants were less tolerant. So there was the need here in Virginia and other places in the South to hide in plain sight. The Catholics tend to tended to be more tolerant if those certain African uh, practices were included in the religious worship, the ceremonies and so forth. They could introduce their drums into that. But if they did it, if they drummed outside of that religious worship, that was threatening. This is such a difficult area of history for me at least, to think about. Because on the one hand, you want to sort of be scholarly and think about anthropologically these religious traditions, how they come together, how they merge. But then it, it just hits you at such a personal level how terribly dehumanizing this is to take everything physical from a person, but then try to strip away, strip away what's in their heart as well, their religion, 
what do we do with all this? Do we, do we look for these stories, these narratives of resilience and hope and the leaders that, that emerged from it? How can we unpack all of this very tangled history? So I think it's within the African-American community and, and other communities as well, but in, in the African-American community, the religion was not just uh, a, uh, a religious text, but it, it, it was a way of life. It was a way of survival. It was a way of uh, maintaining perseverance that you would overcome, that maybe if you don't see it, maybe your children would see it and it gives you the hope that at some point, because you're dealing with other Christians, other uh, Christians, that at some point there would be some resolution to the efforts uh, that Christian brothers and sisters could live together in harmony. So, and I think the other big part of it is, is with the American Revolution, Part of the, the, the American Revolution was religious freedom, eventually religious freedom, but religions were being persecuted, even like the Baptists here in Williamsburg, uh, they, they were being persecuted. And uh, so that played an important part with, with, with religious freedom. It allowed African-Americans to then use religion, as well as abolitionists, to use religion as a way to begin to break down uh, attitudes about slavery and slave trade. because they could begin to shame people from a Christian perspective, okay? Uh, and so that gave them access to say, well, you know, you're a Christian and the Bible says this and you're inconsistent with the, with, with, with the, with the Christian faith. It's a fascinating history yeah. with so many facets, um, cultural and social. And I hope that when visitors come to Colonial Williamsburg, they'll visit the African-American religion exhibit. But I hope they'll also take time to talk to the interpreters, to see some of these programs and really delve into this history, which is as full a part of American history as, as any, any story in the revolution. So, Harvey, thank you so much for you're being welcome. here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We're always glad to hear your feedback. Send us an email at podcast.history.org.